0: You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology.
1: Brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry.
0: Welcome, friends. Thanks for joining us on Wealth Tech on Deck. Like many of you, I follow the industry news closely and I'm especially interested when there is some new and interesting research, particularly around demographic trends. As the pandemic unfolded, our guest today, Jason Fichtner, conducted research of retirement demographic trends that made a big splash when they that research came out. And of course, like everything else these days, things changed and then they changed again and they keep on changing. So I'm very pleased to have Jason back with us on our show when his uh, research that he did with the ALI, he'll describe that in a moment, came out, confirmed a lot of things that we had talked about for a long time. And then... Everything changed and changed again. So we'll, we'll get into all that detail and all that research about what was found then. And I'm particularly interested to hear what Jason has to say about where we are now and where he sees things going from here. So, Jason, welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck.
1: Thanks, Jack. It's good to be back. Appreciate you having me on the show.
0: Our pleasure. So, Jason, uh, you've accomplished a great deal over the course of your career. You're uh, much more than just a research guy. You're all that and much, much more. So let's start with a high-level view of the work that you've done over time and some of the interesting projects you're working on now.
1: Thanks. I'll try to make this sort of short, even though it's been kind of a a long career. But I started out uh, at the Internal Revenue Service for the Department of Treasury, my first job out of graduate school doing compliance research. And that's sort of where I got into tax and retirement policy. And I you know, realized no one grows up wanting to be a tax economist. But when I got into it, I was really excited about it and really got into tax and then savings, incentives, retirement, and how we could use tax policy to help people save and invest and the incentives around that. And that led to various other future careers and jobs. I spent eight years with the Joint Economic Committee of the United States Congress, where I did research on savings, investment, mutual fund policies, and again, obviously, tax policy. And then, sort of more related to what we're talking about today, I took a job at the Social Security Administration. And it was under Commissioner Mike Astrew, who hired me to head up their research office. And you know the old adage, no good deed goes unpunished, I was a guy who kept opening my big fat mouth. And someone said, well, if you think you can do it better, maybe you should. And the next thing I knew, I was nominated by President Bush to be the Deputy Commissioner of Social Security, which is the number two position for the agency. And I also became the Chief Economist. Yes. So I got to be heavily involved in just the part of the day operations of the agency, but also seeing really what it meant for retirees, many who are living on Social Security as their primary means of support, but also how the agency was doing things in a way that was behaviorally different and was forcing people in some ways to make different claiming decisions like claiming earlier than was optimal for them. And we went on a mission then to start changing how we talked about the claiming decision with beneficiaries, the nomenclature we were using. We can talk about that as well today. And then just getting into protected income in general and annuities and how we've seen the change in the defined benefit plan environment, which of course, in some ways social security is, to a defined contribution world, and how that DB plan system was sort of feeling for many The DC system has come in and helped, but it's not ideal either. And now we're going to a new stage of retirement where both the DB and DC plans need to come together and think about holistically how that works with Social Security to create a new framework for retirement for people as we move into the modern era. And that's what my research has been focusing on with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, where I also head up the Retirement Income Institute for them.
0: So thanks for that, if I may summarize in very... uh un-geek-like language. You're a geek that understands taxation, You're who understands all the different retirement systems, past, present, and hopefully future. So you really look at really how the consumer traffics in this thing called retirement. And that leads us to the research you did with ALI, looking at the demographic trends and what they mean currently and going forward. So maybe why don't we go back a little bit when you came out of the research, really was a... I thought uh, groundbreaking in that it affirmed, what so many people understood, but you really put a sort of a fine point, what it was, what it means. Why don't you go back, if you would, Jason, and describe the research and when it was, what you found, and then we're going to talk about, and now what is your view of what you researched at that point? So why don't you just uh, take us back, if you would, when that re- initial ALI research came out?
1: Thanks. Right, so we put out a paper March of last year called the Peak 65 Generation and Creating a New Retirement Security Framework. And what this sort of went through is talking about how our entire model of retirement, the demographics have sort of changed. People are living longer. We're also seeing that retirement is not a one-size-fits-all model. I mean, the the idea that my parents and my grandparents who worked primarily for one job, the one company their entire life, turned 65, got the gold watch and retired, isn't necessarily the standard model anymore. You have people who continue to work well into their 70s and 80s. They have partial work careers, or they do volunteer work. But the idea of retirement has now changed for so many. And for some people, they also can't work, say, past 62, because they've had more hard jobs on their bodies, and they haven't lived in an air-conditioned environment where they have had jobs like mine. And so for them, retirement's also different. And so we're seeing these changing demographics. And then we looked at the retirement security framework, for example, Social Security. Social Security technically is OASI the Old Age Survivors Insurance Program. It is an insurance program. It is not designed to be a retirement program. It was designed to insure you against old age from a time when many people, if they lived to 65, didn't live much longer, and it was around, again, as insurance to make sure you did not live your savings. Now that whole program has turned to people think of it as their retirement savings account, but it hasn't kept pace with that. And so that whole model was based on the idea of the three-legged stool, you remember. Social security, you had an employer-provided pension, and you had your own personal savings. That three-legged stool is now wobbly. The social security trust funds are projected to be insolvent somewhere around the mid-2030s, 2034 for OASI, and if you include DI, the disability program, it's 2035. So that's kind of shaky, and if we don't do anything to support it, benefits could get cut by 25%. The defined benefit plans for employers have mainly gone away. Some state and local plans still exist, but a lot of them are underfunded. And now we have personal savings rates, which also they went up during the pandemic, but have since been declining. So now we've moved in this defined contribution plan system, which in one way I think is great. It works really well for me. It gives people access to the market. They get growth. They get equity. But we tell people, Jacks, for so long, save, 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 and then they get towards retirement and we kind of like say you're on your own. We don't tell them how to then turn that defined contribution nest egg into a stream of income that'll last the rest of their life. And that's what a defined benefit plan did for them. So what we now need to do and this with the research mm-hmm. is showing with the demographics is we need to change our entire thinking about what it means to have protected income and retirement and how we use Social Security as a basically a foundation, but how we also use in people's defined contribution plan assets to help them bridge made to delay claiming Social Security so they can get a higher monthly benefit for the rest of their life or how to take some of that defined contribution assets and turn it into a stream of income on top of Social Security so people can have a more secure retirement, and as well as add personal savings. And that's kind of what we're showing with the research. And then the policy leads into how do we do that? How do we get both the private sector, the public sector, and of course, Congress and the White House to get involved in better policies to make it easier to facilitate people to save and also to decumulate and help transfer some of those assets into protected income and
0: So what does that look like? It sounds good. We all watch the government operate as it does. Doesn't always fulfill on the opportunity, shall we say. So it's one thing to say what ought to happen. How do you influence public policy? How do you get Congress to do the right thing? This is a fraught topic, obviously. So what does that look like? What is that public-private partnership or at least cooperation, what does that look like? What are you advocating for?
1: So this is that really, one is, you know, I call myself an educator, right? I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, I don't lobby. So I don't go out there and say, do X, Y, and Z, but I try to promote and show people where there are gaps and how policy can help influence and change those gaps. So let me give you a good example. Mm-hmm. Right now, the modal age, which is, you know, what age most people claim social security benefits is age 62. And it's not the majority, but you can claim between 62 and 70 and more people claim at 62 than at any other age. So it's called the modal age. And what we find, of course, is when we talk to people about Social Security claiming, they go in and say, oh, of course, it's the early eligibility age. Age 62 is the early eligibility age. That's what we call it. No one likes to be late, Jack. They all want to be early. But when you go ask people, do you realize that by claiming at age 62, you're getting a reduced benefit for the rest of your life? A lot of people don't understand that. And to give your, your listeners sure, an idea, sure. assume that for what they call the full retirement age, which I also think is a horrible word because what does full mean anymore? But right now it's 66 and around 10 months. Imagine if you were eligible for $1,000 a month of a benefit at your full retirement age. If you got it at age 62, you'd be getting a little over $700. That's a huge mm-hmm. reduction. It's like a 30% reduction in benefits. If you wait to yep. age 70, yep. you get $1,240. That's a 24% increase in your monthly benefits that lasts for the rest of your life. The gap between age 62 and 70, that gap is a 77% difference. If You go and tell somebody, hey, you're losing 77% in your money, they're gonna start thinking differently about claiming. So what can we do in the public-private partnership? One is the government can change how they talk about social security claiming. We could talk about early minimum or minimum benefit age at age 62 and maximum benefit age. That way, if someone goes into social security Mm -hmm. and says, I'm thinking about taking social security, I'm 62, The claim chef could say, Oh, so you want your minimum benefit. And someone's going to say, Wait, what do you mean minimum? That means I can get more. And that starts a conversation. So, one is changing that sort of framing. And that's just language. That's not changing the benefit structure. It's not forcing anyone to do anything. It's just changing how we talk and present the information. So, that's one. The second is, How can we help facilitate people who are able to delay claiming? How do we make it easier for them? So, if someone comes in and says, Jack, I'm sorry, I've had a hard life, I've worked hard. I don't think I can work past 62. I understand that I'm going to have to take early Social Security and that's reduced benefit for life. I wish I could delay. I just can't afford it. How do we make it easier for someone to say, wait a minute, you've got a defined contribution plan. You've got a DC plan assets. We can take that DC plan and turn that into a stream of protected income, an annuity that will last you five years, seven years and allow you to delay claiming. So if your Social Security is going to be $700. We can buy you an annuity for $700 a month that pays out that benefit and lets you delay and then transitions, that annuity ends and you've claimed Social Security and now you've got a higher protected monthly benefit that's inflation adjustment for the rest of your life. Why don't we do something in public Mm -hmm. policy that gives some tax benefits for doing that? Where if someone gets a bridge annuity to delay claiming Social Security, we don't tax that income stream or we don't do it for middle income or lower income workers. That's some way that public policy can help and encourage people to delay claiming and how we think about this whole new sort of. Ecosystem of retirement and how to facilitate better retirement security, delay claiming Social Security without even changing the benefit formula or tax rates.
0: Yeah, actually, we have a Social Security tool like like many, and we highlight that the way we characterize it is that Gene sixty two and seventy. If you wait, it's a eight percent per year bonus in terms of income down the road. And as people see that, then that it changes their mindset around when to file and then how to use an annuity or use an investment account or however they might do it. But the idea is that to improve outcome by waiting. So there is an education process to be had. There's another thing that I'm observing, and this is more, I don't know, it's behavioral or it's just what people seem to be doing out there. And at first, people were in a rush to retire just because they were sick of it and they were sick of the pandemic and they were scared or whatever the reasons were. There were many reasons I read over the over the course of a couple of years when people were trying to figure that all out. Talk us through a little bit of just that demographic shift as people confronted retirement, your research happened to coincide with when people are making those a lot of those decisions as a record number of people are retiring. Talk us through what happened. Did people seem to, they called to the great resignation, they seemed to decide to, to retire, I'm reading more and more people are talking about coming back, but they're coming back on their own terms. Talk us through that demographics, then we'll get a, kind of get into, so what do you do about that, given people seem to have their own individual way of retiring these days? So talk about that purely for, as a starting point from a demographic standpoint.
1: Sure. So when I was doing the Peak 65 research, the reason we sort of titled it Peak 65 is that in 2024, we hit our Peak 65 moment, where about 12,000 people a day will turn 65. Right now, it's 10,000 a day. So again, the demographics are showing we're two years away from when then 12,000 people a day will start turning 65. That's our peak 65 moment. Gotcha. And that, let let us start looking into your point about retirements. And generally speaking, there's a trend line. We know actual accounts and social security. We know people's ages. We know how many there are at certain ages. So we can sort of guess when they're supposed to retire based on previous history. And you can see a trend about the number of retirements you have per year. When COVID hit, All of a sudden, we saw between two and four million more retirements, people leaving the workforce that were age 50 and older, than were projected to have happened. And and this is that great resignation you're talking about. And the question was, why are people doing it? Uh, Are they just like, they're fed up with working? They see that they don't want to to go back to the office, and COVID sort of made them realize that there was more to life than work. What was going on? But we saw, again, between two and four million people leave the workforce. Now, the great resignation is changing to what I'm calling the great reset. And we are now seeing a reset of those expectations. And that just is not for retirement, but it's also for the labor market. We're seeing people who, you know, where employees had the upper hand and sort of moving around because of jobs, you know, being short, they can actually command more wages. If we get into a recession, that might change. We are seeing now potentially a recession. We have had two quarters of consecutive negative GDP growth, which is the sort of the layman's term for recession, a shallow one. And we're starting to see really high inflation. So people that retired early are now looking at their income stream and saying, well, maybe I don't have enough to support myself if inflation is going to stay at 8% a year. And some are coming back into the labor market. Now, they're going to come back fully, completely, partially. That's the question that remains to be seen. And this gets into the demographics as well as what is happening with retirement. Again, it's not one size fits all. It's a transition. And part of the education with this And social security is, you know, there are mutually exclusive decisions, right? You can claim social security and still work. You can stop work and not claim social security, right? They're independent. They don't have to go together. And some people say, well, I've stopped work. I must claim social security or I claim social security. I have to stop working. That's not it at all. We again we need to think more holistically about what does it mean now for quote-unquote retirement? Maybe that's a bad word. Maybe we need a new word than retirement, Jack, to talk Mm -hmm. about the next Mm -hmm. phase of life for people. Because some people are now looking at, again, how do they have a fulfilling life after age 55, 60, 65, 70? Again, let's find a new term for it that describes our ability to have meaning, purpose, and financial support. And that could be a mix of work, social security, volunteer work. But how do we do that? And how do we use public policy and of the financial markets and folks like you know prudential and fidelity and vanguard and our employers who help us with our defined contribution plans how do they help us with financial wellness so that we can save to get to that point so that when we do hit quote-unquote retirement we can have that fulfilling and satisfying life and again be financially secure what does that mean for income streams I think we've got to stop talking about this whole idea of what is your retirement number? Do you need $1 million, $2 million? I think we've got to start talking about what is it you need for an income stream in retirement? Do you need to maintain $1,000 a month, $5,000 a month? What is your license to spend? How you feel comfortable? And then back in that stream into an asset base that allows them to purchase that annuity stream. I think that's how to start talking about this because that's the entire changing nature of retirement these days.
0: So talk about this. this is a little bit of, I guess, crystal ball stuff. but. You're studying sort of the the numbers, you're studying behavior, you're studying what people are doing. And in my observation, I happen to hang out with a crowd that is either in or near retirement, so I'm quite familiar with this conversation. I have it seemingly daily. Certainly, income stream is an important part of that, but really what they're looking for is something to have an interesting life. So how would you say the industry is doing in terms of supporting that effort? We, I hear a lot of talk about financial wellness, and I have to be honest with you, every time I hear it, I... It seems like a BS term. But be blunt, it's a nice term. I'm not sure what it means because I always ask whoever I'm speaking with what what does financial wellness mean to you, but. As an economist, as a researcher, as someone that studies this sort of stuff, how are we doing? How is our industry doing and in supporting this? Because we can look to the government, but I, I think it, unless it starts with the industry, it's not going to happen in a way that's going to be constructive for all. So give us your assessment, if you would, of what's going on and where you see that going.
1: Yeah, I think we're doing about a C plus B minus right now, Jack, but we're getting better. If you had asked me five years ago, yeah. I probably would have said C minus D plus. And I think okay. this is
0: good. Progress? Progress, like that? right?
1: And then, but this is the work- that you're doing with this podcast that the Alliance for Lifetime Income is doing with education and research that others are doing are trying to be more innovative in products and get on the behavioral side. And again, you know, employee wellness might be a, you know, a hokey term overall, but I think it's important we start thinking about what that means and try to define it more because it really does go into, you know, but talking to someone about retirement when they're 65, you're talking about it too late. You just start talking to people about it when they get their first job. And people don't like to yep, think that yep. far in the future. Like if you imagine someone coming out of college, they're 22, and you sit down with them and say, let's talk about your retirement. They're like, what? i still got to pay off student loans. I want to buy a house. They want to get married. Sure, sure. But financial wellness incorporates all of those financial issues that someone has to deal with. Student loans, marriage, housing, kids. And to start thinking about that as a plan. I think that's where, one, financial professionals can be very helpful to people and start talking them through what are sort of the stages of life you might go through and how do we start preparing people for that? Because the earlier you start saving for any sort of goal, the better off you are. And then employers have a role in helping do this, too. You know, my employer here, you know, my other job is the vice president, chief economist at the Bipartisan Policy Center. You know, we have a defined contribution plan and we have a service that we pay for our employees to have, where if they wanna to talk to somebody about financial wellness. What do I do about my investments for my defined contribution plan? Can you help me figure out what to do with my healthcare, student loans? There's someone there we pay to help give advice, so it's not the employer giving it, but we provide that as a benefit, employee benefit. That's part employee wellness, so that's kind of where I'm thinking this goes. And then what the industry needs to do is now be more creative about delivering products. So one of the things we find, Jack, and this is some other research I've done for the Alliance with Michael Finca, is we went out and interviewed people who are, you know, getting like fifty plus, and you know, talking about their defined contribution plans. And we asked them whether or not they wanted to have in their plan annuity options. And there are two things we found. One, we can't use the word annuity. And which is a fascinating thing, which I'm sure you're aware of. If you go out to the street and you ask people, would you like to get a paycheck for life? They say, oh, Jack, I would love a paycheck for life. Would you say you'd like to have, you know, a monthly paycheck from your employer? I would love to have that. Would you like to have your own personal pension? I'd love my own personal pension. Do you want an annuity? No. So the annuity word is is not resonating with them. But if we use phrases like protected income or guaranteed income, I know guarantee has issues with compliance. Sure. We start talking about a guarantee of protected income, people pick up, or like, I'd love that. So we surveyed people and said, would you like to have in your like target date fund or in your plan, some allocation of your assets to protected income? And half of them said they would. And then more start saying, depending on how you use phrasing. So they start asking them to reallocate, like what percentage do you want towards equities, bonds, or fixed income? What would you want as a mix? They do want some protected income. So we need to do a better job as the industry, one, of educating what protected income is guaranteed, even if we don't use the annuity word, the A word, but also start giving people the products they need. So people are afraid. It's called this lump sum fallacy problem, the paradox, where someone says, hey, I've saved, say, a million dollars in my DC plan. And someone says, great, you give me your million dollars and I'll give you a $1,000 a month for life, or whatever the number is. And people say, no, I don't want to give that up. There are some innovative products. TIA has one. They call it an income test drive. I call it a trial annuity. And what that means is they basically have a product that says, we want to sell you an annuity. We'll do a two-year trial. You pay up front, we'll start giving you a a paycheck, a monthly paycheck for life. And you have two years to change your mind. If you don't like it in two years, you can get the rest of your money back. No fee. If you like it, we'll just continue. And the idea was if you start giving people that income stream, they're going to like it and want to keep it. But that's an innovative yeah. new product. We've got to get more sort of companies out there to start offering these innovations. The next thing to think yeah. about, and I know BlackRock is doing this, is how do you now put annuity contracts in, say, for example, target date funds? We've been really good about keeping and making defined contribution plans simple for people. And I'm not saying you know target date funds are the, the best thing in the world and there aren't some problems with them. But for 99% of people who invest in DC plans, target date funds make sense. Can we now make them simpler so they have some decumulation portion to it when people actually retire so they get protected income stream from that? What does that look like? How do we innovate? What can those products be? We're moving mm-hmm. along those lines and that's why I say we're doing better. And hopefully you know, in a year or two when I come back on your show, I'll give the industry a B plus A minus rating.
0: So let me uh, give you my two cents on the matter. I'm going to add an element in this discussion around technology. And one of the things that we observe, we've had in-depth conversations with companies like Morgan Stanley and and Empower and many of the other folks that are in the defined contribution world. And they're all working on financial wellness, so there's many more beyond that we're both talking to and are working on this. The good news is my observation is that what's happening in, in the defined contribution space around financial wellness is that really it's the starting point for savers and investors. That's where they get started in hopefully in their 20s and 30s. Uh, with company matches, it's a great way to get, get a leg up, to get started, to get into the habit, and it's it's somewhat painless in that it comes out of your paycheck before you actually see it, so it's you're building up your defined contribution plan. And increasingly, what we're seeing, and largely driven by technology, is you're able to make better decisions because it's being teed up so that you're, whether you're looking at healthcare, whether you're looking at savings rates, whether you're looking at all the different ways that you might look at accumulating assets and setting yourself up for a robust retirement, increasingly what's happening, and there's fierce competition. The firms are are working hard to create a better experience, not only the experience in and of itself, but rather guidance around doing a better job in terms of having more of an accumulated nest egg and what have you. And then, of course, as you get closer to that moment, making informing around issues of social security optimization, looking at tax issues in terms as you bring in taxable accounts in addition to your qualified accounts. Increasingly, what's being put in place, it's still early days, but it's really across the board. You're seeing more and more firms are putting it all together in such a way so that you actually have more money. Basically, you have accumulated more money, you've accumulated in a smart way. And then the product design, as you described a moment ago, is coming in to say, okay, well, now we're going to start to convert those assets to income. And what's the appropriate timing around that? And there's also some guidance around planning and what have you. I could keep going, but you're quite familiar with all that's going on. But it's largely driven by technology. And the good news is, and really what the firms are Competing for it, from what I can tell, and I use Morgan Stanley as the most vocal and outspoken in this regard, they ultimately want to win your nest egg. It's not just the higher net worth folks among among the 401k participants, but it's also everybody. And as they can convert them, and are really building systems so they can convert that, so that be, they become full fledged clients. So that's sort of the the path that I see unfolding. It's really really stage still, but I'd love your comments on that. I just laid out a whole bunch of stuff that takes place over time, but it gives me great hope and great great solace that really the private side of of the marketplace is stepping up in a way in a competitive way, to come up with a better offering. So I'd love your comments on that,
1: though. Yeah, so, so Jack, luckily you and I are looking at the same crystal ball, and I see the same thing you do. And there are people out there who will come back to you and I and say, but you know, there's fees involved and there's high costs. I'm an economist. The one thing I love about economics is competition. Competition is a wonderful thing. It drives innovation and it drives costs down. And you can see this. And again, I tell this as an example, you know, I'm almost 51 years old. When I was in high school, my dad got me involved in stock investing in high school, and we had a Merrill Lynch brokerage account that he put me, set me up for He was the, you know, the primary account, and I was the minor, but you know, I was on the account. And I remember back then, this is the mid to late 80s. One, it was 75 to 100 commission to buy or sell any stock transaction. And you had to buy in round lots, right, of 100. You couldn't buy 10 shares or partial shares. It had to be 100. And your best thing you could do was to have the dividend reinvestment plan, the DRIPS, to reinvest your your income stream from the dividends that are paid out. Now you have, quote unquote, zero cost trading. Nothing's free, but the zero cost, it's all built into the fees. They've driven down the cost. And you you can buy partial shares, fractional shares. There's so many things that innovation has done and competition to drive it down to democratize savings and investment for everyday Americans. That has happened over the last 30 years, right? To your point, we are now building the next generation of what this looks like. Morgan Stanley is doing it. Others are doing it. And I see this being one where competition, again, will make, and with fintech and basically being able to have automaticity drive down costs, move people into an area where competition will make it not vanilla for everybody, but there'll be areas in which for most people a default will work. And so, you know, people still want to have the ability to reach out to a person, But imagine we have a system like you laid out, Jack, where the the computers and the innovation, the fintech and the, the algorithms are all going through and saying, we've created basically some sort of target date type fund system for you that is going to reallocate based on your age and what you've told us is some risk profiling and preferences and the market, what goes into equities, what goes into bonds, what goes international. And as you get older, we're going to start converting that into some stream of income, not all of it, but part. Because people still are going to need access to the market and equity because to protect for inflation and they're going to want some growth and a request amount. That's all going to start happening. That's all going to be done automatic, but there are going to be times where someone's going to say, wait a minute, I have a question. I need to talk to a person. You still need to have that option to talk to somebody. So imagine that 95% of things can be done automatically, but for 5% of people or 5% of the time for everybody, they're going to want a person. Make that still available. That way, there's still that human connection needed. When necessary. And I think that's where we're going. And I think this is going to happen a lot quicker than we think. I think we're going to see this happen, Jack, in 10 years. I think the industry's changing so much now and that we're seeing it. And if you're smiling at me and laughing. I think it's 10 years. I think it's two or
0: three. I think it's going to happen quicker.
1: Oh, good. You're more optimistic than I am. Good. All right. I thought you were laughing because I was being too early.
0: No, 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 uh, not at all. Not at all.
1: Good. Well, I'm glad you think it's earlier. But this is where public policy can help. So yes. what I'd like to get Congress more involved in is to have the industry come in and say, it's in everyone's best interest that people save, invest, and have retirement security and do something that helps change their defined contribution assets into a stream of income in some capacity. How do we facilitate that? Is it regulatory barriers that need to go? Is it liability issues? Is it tax preferences? Is it all of the above? That's where Congress can help. And that's where, again, the public and private need to come in and work together in changing things. And we're trying to do that with Secure Act 2.0 and then We'll see what Secure Act 3.0 looks like when it needs to to happen.
0: Well, I I can assure you we are in great hands having an advocate like you for on this topic because it's complex, as you well know. And the good news is the marketplace is responding already. And as we align around really helping people lead better retirements, it's a win for all. So I really applaud the work you're doing, Jason, and the work you're doing with ALI and many other organizations around this. So uh, thanks for that good work. Our time grows nigh, so uh, this has been, as always and as expected, a fascinating conversation. So as we wrap up, Jason, what are three key takeaways you'd like to share with our audience in terms of what they might leave with uh, our conversation today?
1: I think what I'd like for people to take away is, one, there is no such thing as a normal retirement, right? Not one size fits all. So talk to somebody about your plans and plan for the future, right? People don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. So let's plan. That's the first thing. The second one is really start thinking about social security claiming. If you can delay, delay, right? You can always go to Social Security tomorrow and offer benefits between 62 and 70. But one of the best financial decisions you can make for secure retirement is to delay it until you actually need it. That would be the second. And then the third, make sure you find purpose when thinking about retirement. Because way too often we see people, and some of this is anecdotal, but you also see it in the research, when people lose the connection to humans, right? Whether it's through the workplace, through family or friends, they start getting more mental to de- Depression, physical depression, signs go, make sure there's something they're doing to have purpose in your life and you're having fun, whether it's grandkids, traveling, reading, whatever it is, make sure that becomes part of your wellness plan, because that's how all this fits together so you can have a really meaningful, fun, happy, financially secure life when you do decide to retire, whatever retirement means for the individual.
0: That's terrific. Thank you. Jason, as always, a uh, real pleasure speaking with you. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Thank you. And as exactly. we do each week on our uh, podcast, my favorite question, what is something you do outside of work that you are excited or passionate about people might find interesting or surprising?
1: So while I am someone who believes in managing risk very well, I don't do that when it comes to my hobby. I ride motorcycles. I have a really nice... BMW S1000R motorcycle, which is not a motorcycle for a 50-plus-year-old. It's probably a motorcycle for a late 20, early 30-year-old. And at some point, I should probably grow up and get a touring bike, but not there yet. But
0: that's really beautiful. <laughs> Good for you. You got to have some fun, right? So, for our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech On Deck. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, Jason. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for having me, Jack. Always a pleasure talking to you. And thanks for all the work you're doing and helping educate people. I really appreciate that as well and all the kind words you've had for me today. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of
1: Wealth Tech On Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.